You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. How can we minimize the risks of preterm birth and what new developments might help improve neonatal outcomes associated with prematurity? Joining us to discuss the latest on preterm birth is Dr. Michal Elevitz, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Director of the Maternal and Child Health Research Program in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Penn Medicine. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Elevitz. It's my pleasure. In terms of preterm birth, how common a problem is this in the United States and in the rest of the world? So, astonishingly, preterm birth is one of the leading cause of adverse childhood outcomes. So, in the U.S., it's about a 12% prevalence of all pregnancies will end up with a preterm delivery. In the African-American population, it's even higher with rates up to 15%. And is that something we think is due to differences in prenatal care? We did for a long time. The emerging data now shows ethnic differences despite controlling for different socioeconomic status or even access to prenatal care. So limited access may contribute to preterm birth, but it's not the major contributor to it. And is this, I imagine, also a problem around the world? Is it any different in other countries as far as you know? So interestingly, some of the Northern European countries have much lower rates of preterm birth. The U.S. has one of the highest preterm birth rates for reasons that we really cannot identify yet. Hmm, That's very interesting. And do you know, have we been seeing the rate of preterm birth kind of remain steady over the years, or are we seeing it increase or decrease? So interestingly, we've actually seen it increase. Despite actually a push for research in this area, the rates of preterm birth have been continued to rise. For a while, it appeared more to in vitro fertilization procedures and multiple gestations. But even controlling for twins and triplets, we still have slowly increasing rates, not decreasing rates of preterm birth. And as I think about our population here, I I think of mothers getting older, giving birth later in life. Does that seem to be playing any role? Actually, no. We cannot attribute maternal age to the increasing rates of preterm birth. Okay, so that's not associated. Very interesting. Do we know what established risk factors there are for having a preterm child? So the greatest risk factor is a prior preterm birth. However, if you take all women in a year with a preterm birth, the majority of them will be first-time moms. So that risk factor isn't very good at identifying the majority of women who will have a preterm birth. So we really can't label particular people, at least the first time around, as being at a higher risk or lower risk for this problem. We have some idea of some risk factors. So we know that poor nutritional status, lower socioeconomic status, certain races are at increased risk. They're just not the main or isolating cause that if we do something different to that group of women, we've ever shown that we can change outcome. Any genetic component to this? Does it run in families? So it does run in families. Women whose mothers have preterm birth are more likely to have preterm birth themselves. However, to date, the genetic studies in obstetrics have not revealed a specific pathway, if you will. However, that must be said with the caveat that genomic studies in obstetrics are probably a decade behind other complex disorders such as cardiovascular disease. So we haven't really done those full studies yet to figure out if there is a genetic propensity to preterm birth. So it seems to be some genetic predisposition, but we really haven't identified the particular mutation or genetic uh, problem that causes that. Exactly. How about medications? So many people are on medications now, even during gestation. Do those seem to play any role? Not that we have identified yet. Women who take medications have a higher rate of iatrogenic preterm birth or medically indicated preterm birth. So women who are hypertensive during a pregnancy 
are more likely to develop something called preeclampsia. So they might need to be delivered from maternal health, but that's different from really a spontaneous preterm birth that happens without an identifiable cause. And are there other anatomic features, women who are more overweight or, well, you mentioned undernourished, are there other anatomic type of identifiers? So interestingly, obesity does confer an increased risk for kind of general adverse outcomes, especially, as you know, with the growing rate of obesity, the pregnant population is no different. Here at Penn, we have a very large number of obese pregnant women. So without a doubt, that contributes to overall outcomes. However, interestingly, moderate or even severe obesity is not a significant association with preterm birth. Lean BMI or BMIs under 18 do are associated with preterm birth. Very interesting. So the average OBGYN might look for a woman who has a family history of this, might look for someone who's previously had a preterm birth, undernourished, as you said, but there are not a lot of other things that would alert us to this possibility. No, unfortunately, no. The best a general OBGYN could say in the absence of a prior preterm birth is eat healthy, Mm -hmm. take your prenatal vitamins, Mm -hmm. and... You know, even moderate exercise, people have tried to look, it must be physical activity. Something must be leading to this. Has not been borne out to really be a major factor in preterm birth. That's fascinating because one out of 10 births, from what you said, uh, has this problem and we really don't understand it that well. What are some of the consequences both to the child and any to the mother of a preterm delivery? So they can be from nothing to tremendous impact. So one of the things that I like to always tell audience when I talk about is we've done a lot at improving neonatal outcomes. So very preterm infants that used to not survive the neonatal period survive now. That hasn't been without cost. Those preterm babies are now developing or being demonstrated to have adverse neurobehavioral outcomes, including autism. So those babies are at very high risk as surviving preterm infants. However, as good as we get in the neonatal period, we are probably never going to be able to stop those adverse neurobehavioral outcomes. So really only in the obstetrical realm are we going to be able to stop the adverse outcomes from preterm birth. And by doing that, we have to stop preterm birth. It's not just that we have to change what happens in the neonatal period. We just have to find ways to stop babies from being delivered at those early gestational ages. So there's something about remaining in the uterus until term that seems to confer more appropriate neurologic and behavioral outcomes. Are there other anomalies or other types of domains that are affected for the child who's born early? So your degree of adverse outcome long-term is directly related to your gestational age of delivery, as well as what happens to you during that early period. So very preterm infants, those born at 24 to 28 weeks, or what you know our parents used to call the six to seven month range, those infants have somewhere, depending on where they fall in that range, a 60 to 80% chance, if they do survive, a 60 to 80% chance of adverse outcomes, ranging from chronic lung disease to cerebral palsy to just other neurobehavioral disorders. One of the main studies that looked at these very early preterm births was called the Epicure study, and it was out of Europe in the UK, and they followed these infants who were born at 24 to 26 weeks. And what is so surprising about that study is, as suspected, a large number had behavioral abnormalities at 30 months of age. What was not expected is when you looked at those babies or children now at six years of age, some of those who were deemed to be normal at 30 months of age were now, in fact, abnormal on behavioral testing at six years of age. Mm. So the manifestations of prematurity, it is a fallacy to say if they're okay at two and don't have CP, they're going to be okay. So these things can develop a little further down the line than what we had thought previously. Yes. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and joining me to discuss the latest on preterm birth is Dr. Michal Elevitz, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Director of the Maternal and Child Health Research Program in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Penn Medicine. Dr. Elevitz, we've talked a little bit about preterm birth. What can be done to help prevent this in women who have had previous preterm births? Excellent question. So there have been in the last probably decade or so, sponsored by NIH, through something called the Maternal Fetal Medicine Network, several different randomized controlled trials to treat what we believe were risk factors, so sexually transmitted disease, certain vaginal infections. All of those trials, unfortunately, were shown to be negative. In other mm. words, treating them had no impact on the rate of preterm birth. In saying that, one trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2003 by the lead author, Paul Meese, looked at the use of a drug called 17-alpha-hydroxyprogesterone caporate, or which we'll refer to affectionately as 17P, mm-hmm. and randomized women with and with, who had a prior preterm birth to this drug or not. Total number of patients was 300. What was surprising is the women who received the placebo and had a prior preterm birth, their preterm birth recurrence rate was upwards of 55%, so tremendous risk. The group that received the 17P in weekly injections had a significant reduction in their preterm birth rate to about 35 36%. So nice that we saw a reduction and great for an interventional drug to prevent preterm birth, but still a very high rate of preterm birth. And as I mentioned before, the problem is that we now, most sites, will offer this to women with a prior preterm birth. But as we discussed, most preterm births occurring are nulliparous women or women who haven't had a prior preterm birth. So that intervention isn't available for them. And with that intervention, were there some significant side effects or adverse outcomes? So interestingly, no. So it's a weekly injection from about 16 to 36 weeks of pregnancy. And the most common adverse reaction really was side injection or pain. But aside from that, no. Is there a reason then we wouldn't offer this to all pregnant women the first time around, maybe at cost or other reasons? There's two good reasons in my mind. The first good reason is we don't really understand why it works. So in an evidence-based approach or even biological plausibility, we don't really have a good understanding why it worked. Progesterone was actually used in the 70s and was called the lutein. And it was done in different trials where it was shown in some to be effective, some not to be. And it wasn't until this RCT that was done in probably a, a better fashion, if you will, that demonstrated an effect. Because of those prior studies and because we don't really understand the mechanism, it's hard to say we're going to give a drug to all pregnant women. The lessons that we've learned in the past, well, so while we see no adverse effect from the 17P to mom or fetus, right, we know the effects of diethylstilbestrol were not found to 10 to 20 years later. Mm. So I think we always have to be careful in obstetrics that we're dealing with two patients and giving a drug to all patients until we really understand the risk-benefit ratio and, and even the mechanism of action needs to be done very carefully. Well, that's a, a wonderful point that any side effects, although not apparent in the trial, maybe even years down the road when we might see those adverse effects. Right. And I will say that it's not a natural progesterone. It is a hormone that is a natural part of pregnancy. By having that caproic acid on the end of it, it does change it some. So biologically, it's hard to know how it would have any adverse effect, but we just don't know. And are there postulated mechanisms of its positive effect? Well, so that's a great question. So initially, everyone thought, and some I think still do, that progesterone, and we know this in vitro, causes myometrial quiescence or causes the uterus not to contract. 
The problem is when you look at the clinical trial, and again, these are all high-risk women with prior preterm birth, if you look at just admission for preterm labor as kind of a surrogate for myometrial contractility, Mm -hmm. there's no difference between the groups. When you look at newer in vitro studies with 17P saying in vitro studies doesn't stop the myometrium from contracting, doesn't necessarily have that much of an effect. So myself and others who do research on this theorize that this may be working to actually inhibit the cervix from remodeling or changing prematurely, which eventually has to happen in the pathogenesis of preterm birth. That sounds like something that makes more sense than effects on the actual contractility of the uterus. Are there other agents that are more commonly used to quiet labor? I'm an internist, so I'd say magnesium or other things that have been tried in preterm birth. So I will tell you, I will put it out there first that a lot of us still use magnesium sulfate. Other people use procardia. We long time use beta mimetics such as ritadrine and terbutaline. I will have to tell you, though, in every meta-analysis and in Cochrane database review, these drugs don't provide more than 48 hours to seven days of effectiveness. So we use them because in obstetrics, we don't have a lot in our armamentarium, but we don't have great evidence that these make a change in actual ultimate preterm birth. Really a finger in the dike, but it's a very short-term benefit with those agents. Mm Mm-hmm. And in your center, and as you look forward to the future, do you see developments in any particular areas in terms of preventing preterm birth? We have several studies going on here that this is my passion and my work. I hope we find something to make a difference. Mm -hmm. One of our studies from the Prematurity Initiative from the March of Dimes is actually to look at novel biomarkers in the mother to predict who will actually have a preterm birth. One of our problems is we're not very good at predicting, even with women with symptoms, who will eventually go on to have one. So it's hard to give higher-risk interventional strategies when you don't know who's really at risk. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So our first goal is to risk stratify. So that's one of our goals of the study and then saying, now we can give an intervention because this group is such at high risk. The second part of that study is assuming we can't do that, assuming we can't identify the women, is to look at novel markers in the mom and or in the core blood that predict which of those preterm babies might be at highest risk for long-term outcome so that intervention trials in them would be possible. So that's one of the approaches we're doing. The other approaches that we do is I actually have a mouse model of preterm birth, and we really try to use that model to do things and test interventions and strategies that we can never do in human trials. Well, I very much want to thank Dr. Elevitz for being our guest this week on Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine. She outlined for us how common preterm birth is occurring in over 1 in 10 births in the United States and the relative lack of understanding we have of this very common disorder. But she also has talked to us about some encouraging directions for the future so that hopefully we can bring more children to full gestational age. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. To download this program or access ReachMD on demand, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.